The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Clean Coders podcast. This week, we're talking to Micah Martin. Micah, do you want to say hello? Hello, everyone. Glad to be here. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Yeah. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Let people know who you are and what you do for Clean Coders? Yeah, sure. Uh, so my name is Micah. I, uh, I've been a software developer for about 20 years now. At first I worked with... Uh, you know, my father, Robert Martin, at uh, Object Mentor, and then I started my own business, Eighth Light, which was a contract development shop. Since then, uh, you know, I've, I've done a few other things. Clean Coders is a venture that my father and I started together because uh, he really wanted to make these videos. And uh, recently, I've been writing a lot of code on Clean Coders. Oh, cool. And yeah. Uh, yeah, you and I did an interview, man, what, like nine years ago or something? Yeah, it was quite a while ago. Yeah, when I was first getting into podcasting. So it's fun to kind of have this come full circle. And it's like, okay, you know, we're still doing podcasts and still writing code and all that good stuff. Yeah, and a lot changes. Yeah. So I'm curious then, because I, I didn't ask Bob, I didn't ask your dad how Clean Coders got started. So what's the story there since you started it up together? Yeah, so my father, you know, he's, he's got a reputation in the software industry and uh, he'd written a lot of books. And he really wanted to start making videos to put out there. And his videos, he wanted them to be different than a lot of the other streamcasts that you might have seen where people were just typing on their keyboard. Mm-hmm. He wanted to actually get in front of the camera and make it a very uh, interactive experience for the viewer. So as he was working on the videos, you know, he was also looking for places to distribute his videos. And nothing was really satisfactory to him. So you know, we talked about it and figured out that we could just... Uh, build a website to sell his videos and, you know, get other people. There were other people who had interest in making videos as well, and they could get on the same platform. Right. So that's really how how it got started. So what was your role in it then? You know, since he's kind of the, you know, the bigger reputation and, you know, the person who was probably going to bring in a lot of the other talent. So at that point, he had been finished with uh, running businesses. At that point, it's uh-huh. like, like, I don't want to run another business. And he was also busy doing the videos. So the arrangement was he was going to work on the content. I would build the website and get the business off the ground. Were you working for 8th Light at that time or running 8th Light as well? Or Yeah, I was still at 8th Light at the time. Okay. So uh, yeah, and I think you were at 8th Light when we uh, did the interview. And I think we talked about software craftsmanship or something. Because it seemed like I was talking to a lot of people in that movement at that time. So you, you start building the website. And then, and then what, what, what's kind of your story from there? So you build clean coders, hand it off to somebody else. Yeah, well, it, you know, it started off with the boom. Of course, uh, lots of people signed up right away and bought videos. Uh-huh. But after a few months, there really wasn't much to do from an operational point of view. You know, things got quiet, and then and then we had to uh, we had to let go of a developer at Eighth Light for unfortunate reasons. Mm. And uh, you know, clean coders still needed development work, and I wanted to try to free up some of my time, so. This seemed like a great opportunity to to hire that developer. You know, I felt responsible for his livelihood. He worked at Eighth Light, right. and he was a good guy. And I just wanted to keep 
keep that relationship going. So, you know, we hired him at Clean Coders and he basically kept things alive from a, from a coding point uh, for three years. Yeah, first I, I showed him the ropes, but after a while I just handed over the reins and said, all right, take it. Now, of course, my development of software, you know, stems from my father's, which is, you know, the tester right. development, agile software development. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, him being at 8th Light, I expected him to follow through with the same uh, disciplines. And, and he did it first. Uh, but at some point, I don't know what happened. But, you know, we, we looked at the code and all of the tests had been deleted. Oh, wow. Not only had they been deleted, but the entire Git history had been wiped out, you know, prior to 2016. So there was real no recovery of those tests as well. A lot of things had changed and, and it was not pretty. So it sounds like you're working on the code now. Yep. Uh, so, you know, after that point, you know, I was still, I was still at 8th Light, still busy with other stuff. And, you know, we hired contractors to you know, maintain the site and add new features but if you think about it, you know, contractors, if you try to fix something, right, this is a philosophy in software, right? If you break it, you own it, right? You have to fix it. Mm-hmm. And so what contractor wants to go in there and start ripping apart this code and making it better, it's a scary prospect. And so most of the contractors carried on with the, the style of development that Stephen had set forth with no tests. And, you know, the mess just kind of got worse. Right. And this is embarrassing, right? Because we're the clean coders. Right. <laughs> Code was not clean at all. So, you know, someone had to step in to fix it. And uh, I realized contractors weren't going to do it. So it was a good point for me. I was switching gears with my other work. And, and so I stepped in. I've been working on it for a couple of months now. Just you know, adding tests, refactoring the code, trying to make it. You know, something that we're proud of, something that you yep. know, all clean code and, and show to people and say, this is, this is what we can do. I think it's interesting, though, just from the standpoint of kind of the entropy that code has, right? Or the behaviors that people take toward code, where the consequences of not doing things in in a maintainable way, the consequence is so far removed from when you actually make that decision that it's it's easy to kind of, you know, sit back and go, okay, well, people can still log in, people can still give us money, so I guess we're okay. And you set a pattern, right? The code works. So no one wants to touch it. And then when they're trying to build something else, they look at that code, which is not great code. And they say, oh, I see. That's, that's how we do things in this code base. So uh-huh. let me just make more ugly code that looks just like that uh, and get that to work. So the entropy just, just grows and grows. And without tests, nobody can really change anything. You know, it's, it's really scary to, to touch code that you know works. Yep. You don't know if it's going to still work after you touch it. That's <laughs> so true. So what kinds of, I wanted to say patterns, but let's say anti-patterns do you run into then? Because I think a lot of us fall into the same bad habits, the same lazy practices, right? Where it's, well, I just got to get this thing to work, you know, so keep the boss happy. You know, what, what kinds of things are you finding in there that people just kind of see to their pants into the code? So one of the, one of the things is uh, direct access to the database. And by that, I mean... You know, lots of older code bases, you would see, you know, SQL strings littered around the, the code base. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this, this goes back you know, over a decade, right, where we tried to pull all those SQL strings out into a database layer right? Uh, so that the code, you know, had a, 
you know, abstraction layer between itself and the database, or at least it had an API layer between itself and the database. Mm-hmm. It made it much easier to clean things. Well, in Clean Coders, we're using Datomic. Mm-hmm. Datomic doesn't have SQL. It has this language called Datalog, which, which is pretty cool. I mean, it's not strings. It's all data. But there was Datalog just everywhere. Actually, there still is. I'm trying to get rid of it piecemeal without uh, ripping the whole site apart. And that's just unfortunate. So I'm introducing a, a database layer where all the code accesses it through the this one, what I call the DB namespace. And that's making the code much cleaner by itself because all the queries are now one line instead of six lines. There's this white spacing convention with uh, data log where you, just, you have all this data on a new line. So that cleans up the code a bit. And one interesting thing that came out of it is that with a really simple API to access data, I was able to use that same API on the client side because we have a bunch of uh, a closure script. So okay, housed on to JavaScript. And the data is, is shared between the two sides. So you know, I can pull down a bunch of data from the server, store it in a, what we call an atom or enclosures, just store it in the client side, mm-hmm. and then use this database layer to access that data. And so now, because we have the, an abstraction, right, we got code on the client side running in JavaScript, which looks just like code on the server side, which is running in Java. And maybe I'm just geeking out here, but I think that's kind of cool. Well, it's funny that you're, you're talking about that because uh, I talk to a lot of people that they get in and they're like, well, I'm going to use JavaScript on the front end and JavaScript on the back end, and it's going to share all this code. Oh, yeah. And yeah, it turns out that the paradigm is different enough to where it's not a natural thing. And I think for some things, what you're talking about here with this abstraction layer, you know, where it's, I need data, you know, so if I'm on the back end, I need data means I go to the database and on the front end, it means either I go to the back end or I go to some state management on the front end. I, I like that, right? Because then I, yeah, I have to maintain both abstractions, but then I can just do the rest of my work on one paradigm. Yeah, that works. I mean, there are differences, of course, but if you can you know, just tuck those away into a tiny little compartment where they're easily yeah. modifiable, then yeah, it all works great. So I, I guess the other thing that I'm wondering about is you mentioned a couple of times that there were no tests. Mm-hmm. So how do you start with a code base that has no tests whatsoever and you can tell has issues? That's That's something that... You know, we've been trying to help people with, you know, back when I worked with my dad, we did lots of consulting, helping people to wrap tests around their system. So, mm-hmm. and the fortunate part of it is I have a lot of experience doing that. <laughs> it doesn't make it easy. <laughs> uh, I mean, you just got to start by writing tests, you know, without changing the code, you just start writing tests and they're ugly, terrible. You have to do, you know, backflips and, and spins to get this code tested but once you have a test or two, then you can start refactoring. You can make the code more testable and then add more tests. And if you do it, you know, step by step, making the code a little bit more tested, a little bit cleaner, uh-huh. you, know, you just get this avalanche effect where it just starts to be easier to work with. And, and in the end, what you're doing is you're rewriting everything. I mean, all the production code, maybe 10% of it is original. But every step of the way, I knew the code worked. Right. And that's what's important in this type of situation. So do you start from the outside in? So it's like, hey, I've got this high-level functionality. 
And so now I'm going to write a test for kind of the next layer lower that I'm planning on refactoring, or is there a different approach to this that I'm not thinking of? Or Well, you usually start outside in. You yeah. Know, like, uh, well, in this case, we're building a website, right? So someone punches in a URL, makes a request, and we have these handlers on the back end which handle that request. Right. So we'll start by creating a test which creates a request uh, and sends it to our handler, and I just check you know, all the side effects that take place and the results, uh, the response that comes out of it. So you start there, but as you find pieces of code which you know, are hard to reach from the outside, then you can write a smaller test for that, mm-hmm. the helper function. So you attack it from the outside and from the inside, and eventually you just squeeze it into submission. So how do you know when you're done? You know, one of my mentors once told me that good code is never done. You know, there's always going to be more feature requests, mm-hmm. more changes that users want. There's always going to be ways to improve the code. So you're never done. How do you know when it's time to move on to the next part then? <laughs> uh, when the pressures force you to move on, I guess. I've been working on, uh, you know, at one point I had to make a breaking change where I couldn't deploy my changes because I was changing the structure of data on the server and it required changing the structure on the client as well. And it took me a few weeks to work on that. In the meantime, we're getting bug reports. And so I just kind of shelf that and work on the, the bugs that we're getting on the website. But once, you know, once that's deployed, then I can just move on to the next ugliest part of the code. So did you tackle the nastiest thing first or did you tackle the thing that you thought would be easiest to refactor first or something else? Yeah, so I mean, it all starts with, with chasing bugs. Yeah, you know, There's a bug, we're getting errors from the website. Uh, where's this error coming from? And of course, the most errors are coming from the ugliest code, which was all like uh, order processing, complicated code. And so that was the first place I had to dig in. So you just picked the thing that was the most painful from what you could see and just fixed that first. Right. And it's, 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 it's painful. I mean, it's, it's probably one of the most complicated pieces of code. And it's one of the most critical pieces of code because this is where people's money is coming in and, and we don't want to, we got to make sure everything's, you know, summing out to zero and no one's getting ripped off and, and we're getting paid for all the things we sell. So wrapping that with tests Seems like the the right place to start. Let's make sure everything's, you know, even Steven with the finances. So you've been working on this for two months. How long do you think it's going to take you to get all the way through the code base? And how large is the code base? It's larger larger than you would think. I mean, the website is just, uh, you know, we're just selling videos. But over the years, it has grown. We have gift cards and discount codes and we have corporate accounts and uh, corporate users and, and teams. and. There's just a lot of structure in there that I never thought would have come into our website. So yeah, I've been working on this for two months. And, you know, at first it's just about blazing a trail, you know, figuring out how the code should look and, you know, introducing a path of tests with refactoring mm-hmm. code looking the way you need it to look. Uh, and then it's easier to build off of that trail and change the rest of the code. I think, you know, if I was working on this full time, it'd probably take me another four or five months to do it all. But, you know, I don't know that that's necessary. I think once we get enough code transformed, it's easier to do the right thing than the wrong thing. And that's the point that I want to get it to. I think it's interesting. And I think, uh, you know, when I've talked to your dad, I've kind of gotten the same feel that if you're doing it the right way, 
you know, whatever that looks like for you, you know, we can have arguments over TDD or not TDD or, you know, different practices, but if you're doing it the right way, it seems like it, yeah, it's, it's, it gets to the point where it's easier or mostly easier to do it the right way or to continue doing it the right way. Yeah. There's like momentum in the code, you know, it can, it can push you one way or the other. So you want it to push you in the right direction. But how does that, I mean, how do you maintain that? Because I'm assuming when you started out, you know, you started out doing it that way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you said that this other developer, when, when he started out, he was doing it that way. Yeah. And then things just kind of slipped. So how do you maintain that discipline in the code? Well, you know, I've been asking myself that question looking forward, you know, because once we get this into a state that we're happy with, how do we keep it that way? I never would have guessed that this would have happened with the previous developer. Like, why would someone delete all the tests and <laughs> delete Git, Git history so you couldn't recover them? Right. I, I can only imagine that he was he was upset one day and, and frustrated with the tests because it does take work to maintain tests. Mm-hmm. Right? When you change code, you have to change all the tests too. You know, yeah. maybe he just got frustrated and said, screw this, I'm deleting all the tests, which is, of course is not the right thing to do. But how do you prevent it from happening? I just think you need to stay involved. You know, I think I think in the future we need to keep our eyes on things, uh, make sure that you know developers are never in a situation where they would be tempted to do that. So you you talked a little bit about the uh, contractors coming in and you know not helping the problem. So do you think this is an issue that's more easily solved with full time employees, or if you get the right contractor in place, you know they'll do this kind of the right thing or? Uh, yeah, you know, a lot depends on the people. You know, when I started 8th Light, you know, we, I like to think that we were passionate developers and that we would not have let this type of thing happen to the code base. Uh-huh. We would be the ones who would clean up messes when we found them. But having been a contractor, I understand, you know, all the forces that are on you as a oh, contractor. Yeah. And you've got one project, but that's not your only project. So you don't want to be uh-huh. too committed to that project. And so, yeah, contractors, there's, there's a limit to what you can expect from them. And it, it depends a lot on who the contractors are. But yeah, moving forward, you know, my dad and I have been talking about this. And, you know, he says, uh, he says, yeah, Mike, I can keep cleaning up the code and you should hire an apprentice and teach them how to do it so that they can take over full time. And uh, I said, no, dad, you should hire an apprentice so that he can take over. <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in the apprenticeship model. It goes back to software craftsmanship, which I think we uh-huh. talked about before. You know, someone who, who you bring under your wing and you teach them the way of, of coding. And this is the perfect project to do it, right? Because we're taking an example of bad code and turning it into an example of good code. Um, you know, so someone who's just beginning their software career, this would be, you know, an ideal situation to learn to write good code. And they could carry on with the work that, that needs to get done on the website and cleaning up the mess. But it is a big commitment to take on an apprentice. And so, you know, that's why both my dad and I are finding each other. No, you take out an apprentice. Yeah, I find that interesting too. I mean, I've thought about doing the same thing, you know, with some of the things that I'm doing with the podcasts or social media or things like that, right? Is, yeah, bring somebody in, take them under my wing, but then I have to spend the time to do it with them, right? Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, let, let's kind of, change tactics into that a little bit. So let's say that you do bring on an apprentice. I mean, are you looking for somebody that has a couple of years of experience or somebody that 
has very little experience, you can kind of mold, <laughs> you know, into the, the kind of person you want or, you know, would you take on somebody that has more experience that maybe recognizes the value of an apprenticeship with you or your dad or somebody else? I think there's a range there. My criteria for, for an apprentice has always been uh, two things. I think I'd have a passion for software and a propensity to learn. You know, if, if they've got those two things, then you can teach them anything. So if they're a brand new developer, you know, maybe it just takes a few more months than someone with a couple of years of experience. And it's a lot about the person too, right? Because it's a, I'll just say it's kind of an intimate relationship, right? You're spending a lot of time with mm-hmm. your, your apprentice and your apprentice is spending a lot of time with their mentor. So there's, a, there's some chemistry that has to work there as well. Right. About finding the right person. So let's say that you decide that you're the one to find an apprentice, right? Mm-hmm. So do you just put up a job listing somewhere or, you, you, you know, I mean, how do you find them initially? I, I'm just curious what this process looks like from start to finish. Yeah. I don't know, Charles. <laughs> I don't know. I do it. You know, I used to be really ingrained in the community and there would be a list of names that would come to mind of who, who right. I want. So, but, you so know, people you'd met at conferences or, or user group meetings, users groups or at eighth light, we had, it's like university every Friday afternoon, we'd invite the public to come in and we were just always meeting people, people who wanted to learn to code, some who didn't, but we just always knew people. But, you know, it's been four years since I left Eighth Light and, uh, um, you know, I kind of stepped out of the software world for a while. So I, I don't know how I would do it. Maybe start by tweeting, maybe go to user group meetings here in, in Phoenix, Arizona, maybe do a job posting somewhere. Maybe talk to you about apprenticeship and someone hears this and, and emails us. I don't know. Right. So, yeah. So let's say you have a, a dozen people that are interested. You know, how do you start weeding them out? So you talk to them. What are you looking for? So my t- traditionally, you know, I have a long history of, of hiring apprentices. The first step is to tell them to write some code. Right? If they're passionate about coding, they'll love the opportunity to write some code for me. Half of them don't write it. So there you know, you know, these guys are not passionate about coding. So uh, right off the bat, you've knocked down the number of interviews you have to do to 50%. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, you just do the interviews and continue on from there. Would you want them to be local? So in the Phoenix area? Or does that matter? You know, as, as technology improves, it's less and less critical. I still think uh, even if I did hire someone remotely, they'd have to be face-to-face time. So, you know, there'd be huh. some time in Phoenix. Yeah. Right. Makes sense. Ideally, they'd be here. So you get them in. I mean, what's the first thing you do at that point? I mean, are you pair programming? Are you going to make them write some tests and then, you know, kind of do some uh, sit down review with them and tell them, you know, what they did right, what they didn't do right? I mean, what's your approach there? Well, this, uh, I'll just, I'll just give you my secret sauce to my mentorship. This is the pattern that I followed. Uh, this is a loose pattern that I followed with pretty much every apprentice I took on before. And it all starts with tic-tac-toe. That's actually the uh, interview challenge that I would give people. You know, 15 years ago, this was brand new, but now you can find tic-tac-toe problems all over the web. So it's not such a great challenge anymore because the answers are all out there. Mm-hmm. But you know, you get them to write this toy project and then uh, you just start doing the iterative process with them. So we set up weekly meetings and I'll write user stories for them. Like, mm-hmm. okay, that's a good tech program, but now 
you have a human against computer, but I want to be able to play against another human with your tic-tac-toe program. Right. Uh, you've got a text UI, but now I want you to build a graphical UI. Uh, then the next week, I want you to build a, a web interface for your tic-tac-toe program. Uh-huh. And I just start changing it in ways that they don't anticipate, which is what customers do to every developer out there. Uh, <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> yeah. And, and get them to realize the way code changes over time and the way you have to protect the code against changes. And of course, I'm looking at the code and making sure they're writing tests and um, making sure I'm there if they have questions. And this lasts for, I don't know, a month and a half or so. And then, you know, once we've kind of beaten to death the tic-tac-toe thing, then we'll move on to another project, like uh, build a HTTP server from scratch. Just, you know, whatever I feel they need to better expose them to the demands that they're going to be put under as a craftsman, a graduated right. apprentice. So you wouldn't have them working on the clean coders code base right away? No, no, not right away. So then after a set amount of time, you feel like they're ready. I'm, I'm assuming that that's somewhat subjective. It is. Then what? Then, then do you throw them in the deep end? Well, coders.com? Yeah, I mean, the structure I laid out for you is what we did at 8th Flight. And at 8th right. Flight, you know, after, I don't know, it could be anywhere from three months to a year, you know, once they graduated their apprenticeship and became a craftsman, then they would be eligible to go on client projects. And yeah, we're just tossing them into the deep end at that point. But here on Clean Coders, you know, there's a specific project we have in mind. And so I'd probably ease them into it throughout their apprenticeship, you know, have them sit down with me every once in a while to work on the Clean Coders code base. And that'd actually be a good way to, to judge their readiness, you know, you know, see how they handle the, the pressures of the clean code, cleancoders.com code base. Now, were most of your apprentices paid? Yeah, at Eighth Light, we did pay apprentices. We paid them about half of what uh, full-time developers would make. But, you know, if you compare that to university where you have to pay twice what full-time developers make, then, you know, yeah. it's, it's a pretty good deal. So yeah. I, I'm curious, I asked your, your dad this question, but what do you feel like is, are, are the practices that lead to clean code? What are the practices that lead to, lead to clean code? Yeah, so what, what kinds of things are you going to be teaching these apprentices? Well, hey, those are two different questions. Um, uh, fair. <laughs> I mean, the list of things that I'll teach them will be, will be long. Right? We'll be doing not only different Agile techniques like TDD, but also uh-huh. different languages and technologies. Right. Um, but what, what leads to clean code? Well, I have to say that uh, testing is going to be a key component because when you have to test your code, it changes the way you write your code. And it happens to be you know, cleaner code. I mean, making it testable means it's also decoupled and it's, uh, it's more flexible. So that's a key ingredient. It's not enough to just test it, though. I think that's a great start. Removing duplication. People have written books about this, including my dad. But yeah, if you test your code and you refactor it, you're well on your way to clean code. Oh, at at the end of the day, then I guess what I'm I'm looking for is, um, you know, when when you measure somebody up, then against all of these different practices that you're teaching them, you know, it, it is somewhat subjective. But it, you know, is what are you judging them on then? Well, I judge them on whether they're, they're ready to tackle the hurdles that are going to be presented them without you know, me being right by their side or without right. someone else being right by their side. 
you know, as software developers, we never stop learning. Mm-hmm. We're always going to hit hurdles um, and learn new technologies and, and learn how to get over these hurdles we, we encounter. But as soon as someone is able to, you know, know enough to, to, to know what they need to learn to get past their current hurdle, then they're ready, I think. That makes sense. It's, it's interesting, too, because a lot of people um, evaluate people's ability, like in job interviews, based on, okay, well, how do you do this particular thing in React or this yeah. particular thing in Angular? And my answer is always, uh, I can find it on Google in about two seconds. <laughs> yeah. yeah and you so see, I like that. Can you, get, can you get unstuck on your own? Yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, I see these job postings for people that need to know, you know, tech, technology X, Y, Z and technology ABC and just a whole list of them. And like, nobody knows all that stuff. Like, yeah. Some libraries are just so obscure these days. And but what matters is, can people learn it? Can they pick it up quick and run with it? Yep. Yes, in a lot of cases they can. Yep. I remember at one point, I can't remember what company it was, but they... They reached out to DHH because he had 10 years of experience in Rails, right? And tried to recruit him because they had no idea who he was. And, and you know, Rails is only six years old at the time, right? Well, I think it was closer to like eight or nine. So technically he did have 10 years experience with Rails, but he was the only person on earth who did. <laughs> yeah. So. And yeah, I mean, just, you know, just stuff like that. And it's like, you know, at the end of the day, yeah. Can you get the code written? Is it going to be easy to maintain? And, you know, do, do I have to babysit you to get it done and get it done right? Right. That would be one goal, yeah. And, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, not that there's a lot of features that we add, but, you know, features that are coming are, will come quick with a yeah. quick base. Yeah. That makes sense. Cool. Well, um, I've got an emergency to go take care of, so I'm going to jump off. If people want to find you online, uh, where, where do they go? Well, I'm Micah at cleancoders.com. If you want to email me, or I'm Slagger. It's S-L-A-G-Y-R on Twitter. And, you know, of course, I'm on LinkedIn. It's Micah Martin. So, or MicahMartin.com. I have a website. It's got lots of information. And then I'm assuming you're also on some of the series on uh, Clean Coders, right? I'm on one of the series. Yeah, my father and I did a, a Java series where we tried to rebuild. We tried to build the Clean Coders website in Java. Of course, it was a mock-up from the beginning. We're never going to use that code. And, and our code is actually in Clojure, but we wanted to use Java because there's a lot of Java developers out there. Right. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the series I did with my dad. It was kind of fun. I enjoyed it. Sounds good. Well, enjoy your uh, life in warm and sunny. Not It's not warm here, uh, Arizona. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking again. Yeah, me too. Good time with you, Charles. All right. Well, uh, folks, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. We'll have another one next week. And in the meantime, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.